This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. Hello, dear listeners. This is Andrew. I just wanted to quickly apologize for the delay we had in publishing this episode. It's out a few days later than we had hoped for, and the reason for that is that we had a few unexpected technical difficulties with my audio file. So, unfortunately, at around the 38-minute mark, uh, you'll notice the audio quality on my side of the conversation drops significantly. You'll still be able to understand everything I'm saying, I think. It's just not as crisp as it is in the uh, first part of the show. So the last 15 to 20 minutes of the episode, I'd say, are affected by that. Just thought you should know. I hope you'll still listen to the whole episode and uh, we will do our best to ensure something like this does not happen again in the future. All right, enjoy the show. Don't change that dial. It's time for Navigating the Newsroom. Here are your hosts, Andrew and Andrew. Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to episode number three of Navigating the Newsroom with Andrew and Andrew. I'm Andrew Johnson. I'm Andrew Robinson. And this is the show on Film Geek Radio devoted exclusively to discussion of the new HBO show, The Newsroom, created by Aaron Sorkin. How are you doing today, Andrew? I'm doing all right. Well, I'm excited about today's show because this show continues to spawn a lot of debate, a lot of discussion, a lot of really great writing. We'll be talking about some of that tonight. It seems like a lot of critics hate it. And there's been a huge backlash against the show, and then there's been backlash to the backlash, and it just seems to be a really interesting time to be talking about the newsroom. So let's dive right into things. We are going to be discussing episode number two of the newsroom, which aired on Sunday, July 1st on HBO, and it's an episode entitled News Night 2.0. This episode was written by Aaron Sorkin and directed by Alex Graves, who does a lot of TV work and was heavily involved in the West Wing. So, Andrew, why don't you go ahead and give our listeners a brief recap of the episode? Well, Andrew, thank you for asking. On this week's episode, after Mackenzie has pretty much situated herself as the EP of the show, she sets out to produce the first real episode of the new Newsnight, or as she puts it, Newsnight 2.0. She sets out her standards as what she wants the news to be. We have um, the owner of the business, Sam Watterson, trying as best as possible to separate ratings from the content through via... Um, Will's agent, don't ask me what his character name is, we have the introduction of the much-beloved Olivia Munn into the show. You know how much I love her, Andrew. You know. I know you've been waiting for this episode. You've been waiting to see <laughs> Olivia Munn on the newsroom, and we will definitely talk about her performance. I will. She's been introduced as the economist, and as it's said in the show, the economist with legs. So basically... This is the episode which is going to be cementing what Newsnight is going to be for our viewers. However, everything goes awry as Will McAvoy and Mackenzie end up 
delivering one of the worst pieces of news television that I think we could honestly say that even Fox News would be embarrassed to show. It's all about everything that goes wrong with this team, which, as Mackenzie put it, what they make, what they lack in experience, they make up for in inexperience. What did you think of this episode, Andrew? I actually really liked this episode a lot overall. There are a few issues I have with it, but overall, I, I think I may have enjoyed it uh, even more than I enjoyed the pilot episode. You know, it's very interesting to suddenly go from the pilot in which this news team was able to pull together and produce a really good news show. If su- suddenly the opposite happens, and we see them basically fall apart and get everything wrong. In the first episode, we saw Maggie rising through the ranks and rapidly get promoted. And in this episode, we saw that in some ways, she's a little bit out of her league and is still getting used to her new position as associate producer. But overall, I I quite enjoyed it. And there's a few specific things I want to talk about. But before we get into that, what did you think? I kind of agree with you, and I'm even going to go so far as to say I even liked Olivia Munn in this episode a bit. <laughs> so did I. You know, it's interesting because I, I went to see Magic Mike over the weekend, and Olivia Munn has a role in that film, and she is awful. She is terrible in Magic Mike. She's probably the most uh, wooden actor in the entire film. Um and she seems to confuse flashing her boobs with being a serious actress. So I went from seeing her in that to watching her in the newsroom, and it was it was it was almost like watching two different performers. She really did seem to have some idea of what she was doing <laughs> in the newsroom, and she really did seem to have a, a little bit of screen presence. I'm trying to think, if she flashed her boobs in this episode, would I have liked it even more? <laughs> Perhaps. So, would you would you say that this episode was more enjoyable than the pilot? I would, um, very much so. I, I think what got it for me was, while in the first episode, one of my biggest complaints was how much they focused on the actual news, and I think what might have helped it this time around is the fact that the news that they were covering this week, not only was it a case of watching how horribly they ended up delivering that news due to all of the problems that happened this week, but also because the news that they were delivering didn't seem that important in comparison to the BP oil spill, which was last week. So they had a lot more time to spend with characters rather than saying, you missed this two years ago, now listen. And that was my biggest complaint last week. It's completely gone this week. They've made sure to keep characters the main stage of the show, and that's what I love about it. Let's talk a little bit about some of these character developments, because there's actually been a a lot of controversy about female characters in particular, and we'll talk about that a little bit later on. But I want to look specifically, just to start off, at the character of Maggie, because I think she's a really interesting character in that you can tell she at times feels a bit out of her league, but she's still very loyal and she's still very committed to really trying to put on a good new show. And whereas last week, you know, you and I said that one of the things we that kind of annoyed us was that, you know, when they were covering the news, it seemed like they got everything right because of a major coincidence and the fact that Jim was able to 
that happened to know all these magical sources. And here, it was almost like Aaron Sorkin's response to that by having them ruin a show for pretty much the same reason. You know, they were trying to get the governor of Arizona on the show, and it turns out Maggie has a little bit of history with him. Is it a coincidence? Yes. Is it believable? Not really. But it was refreshing to me in the sense that we saw that, you know, a lot of these personal connections that people have with the outside world aren't always going to be beneficial. Well, first of all, before before I talk about anything to do with Maggie, are you saying coincidence can never be believable? I mean, yes, it would be unbelievable if every week Jim got a phone call, hey, I've got this big piece of news for you. Then I'd be throwing up flags and saying something's wrong here. But this is a coincidence. A coincidence isn't believable because it's a coincidence, and therefore it kind of usurps the idea of believability because it's a coincidence. True, but I think there are, you know, there's such thing as a small coincidence that's believable and rather large coincidences that are rather unbelievable. And I think this week's coincidence was somewhere in the middle. It wasn't quite as big as last week's, but it was still pretty big. I mean, you know, the idea that Maggie, you know, had dated someone in college who would go on to become the, the governor of Arizona and that she would end up needing to call him for her job, you know, and, and there had been this aw- awkward sexual experience. That does seem a bit far-fetched to me. That said, I think that Aaron Sorkin, I don't think his shows are really operating on a normal level of believability. A lot of his shows feel very otherworldly in the sense that they, they almost exist in this safe idealized vacuum where coincidences can happen and these often grand character arcs uh, can occur. And I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that most of the time from the perspective of just being a viewer. So while I did have it in the back of my head during the episode, oh, well, that's kind of another big coincidence, it didn't really bother me as much this time. Well, it's nice to know that coincidence can can somehow jar you and at the same time keep you watching and enjoying. Right, and I, I think a large part of the reason that it worked this week, much more so than it worked last week, is that this week it was actually tied into character development. You know, it it was act it did actually reveal a lot about Maggie and who she is and the fact that honestly she she seems like shy and timid to the point of near patheticness. <laughs> At least when she's uh telling this story about what happened between her and the guy who's now governor. And I think Jim even tells her at one point, you know, I don't know anybody who would have reacted the way that you reacted. In, in this situation. Do you think her reaction was shy or timid? I think you could argue that it was, but at the same time, I kind of didn't see what the problem was because I kind of felt like, well, if you're in that situation, what are you going to do really? If if you're under the bed and someone is, a couple is having sex literally right above you, are you going to get out and confront them about it? Or are you just, and, and you know, and make a big deal about it, or are you just going to suck it up and, you know, lie there? And I honestly think that either reaction would be believable and would be realistic. 
So you're saying you would have lied there? You would have, first of all, actually gotten under the bed, and then, once you discovered they were having sex, you would have lied there? Possibly. I'm not sure. <laughs> you so know, so I, I have I, to I, have my gym moment and say, Andrew, I don't know anyone <laughs> who would have done that. <laughs> I, you know... I, I can see why a lot of people have a problem with that revelation and think that it undermines Maggie as a character. For me, it really it, it didn't. I could sort of I felt like I actually learned something about her, which is more than I could say than I learned last week with that coincidence about Jim. All we learned about Jim last week is that he's good at his job and knows a lot of people. What were your thoughts on the development of Maggie in this episode overall? I agree with you that the development of Maggie was well-placed and it was well put out. I don't agree with a lot of the people out there who are claiming that this is somewhat undercut by Jim's, Jim's comment. That's only perception as far as I'm concerned. That's, 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 that's showing us more about Jim. You, you say that we didn't see anything about Jim last week. Yes, maybe it wasn't as obvious as with Maggie's development this week. But while you're saying that Jim is good at his job, it's showing his forwardness in his job. Jim, first time in the office, he jumps into into um, Will's office to say, hey, I have this big piece of news and you need to start working on this now. How, how many people would do that for their first day in office with a boss they've never met and looks like he's ready to fire them? On the other hand, you have this development with Maggie. And while it's easy to claim this being some form of shy or timidness, I view it in a completely different vein. As she said herself in the episode, she made a decision, and while it might have been the wrong decision, she stuck with it. And that's that, that I feel, is something that is really valuable in life, which is why um, you see while her, her boyfriend, Don, is trying to push her to come over to Elliot at 10 o'clock so that eventually, as Don is seeing it, when Will goes batshit bananas and gets fired and Elliot pushes up to eight, she'll still be there with him. She, on the other hand, is making that decision. She doesn't know yet whether it's the right or the wrong decision, but she knows she's made it and she's sticking with it. And that is the development that I attach to. That's the, that's the attribute that I notice most about Maggie. And that's what makes her a better person than anyone on the internet is looking at her as. I think that's a good point. I, I will say the one thing that did annoy me about Maggie this episode is that I did find it a bit unbelievable that she wouldn't tell Jim from the very beginning, I have a history with this guy. I do find it a bit, you know, it, it seems out of character for someone who wants to put on the best new show possible and who wants to do a good job. It seems out of character to me that, that she wouldn't reveal this thing that could potentially ruin everything because all she had to do was you know admit that she knew this guy and they could have fixed it all she had to do was you know just admit it to jim and let him do the phone call and things would have been fine um and i i i did have a little bit trouble buying that she wouldn't tell him it, it seemed like a plot device to me to to, to not have her uh, say anything but that's overachieving. 
Um, Maggie, as as you've seen over the last two episodes, it said in the first episode she was accidentally made a secretary, and then she magically became an associate producer. Over the span of a week, she she went from nothing to something, and she's overachieving. And what does that get her? She finds out that there's this responsibility that she needs to take up, and she feels she has to go over what ever history she has so what does she do she makes a phone call sadly she makes a bad decision during the phone call we don't even know that if she didn't make that bad decision if things would have gone better but she made the phone call because she felt she needed to keep that responsibility that's how people are in an office you you have to keep the responsibility you want to you want to hope for a sense of professionalism that no matter what history might be between you and whoever's on the end of the line you can still get work done I guess that's true, but it, I, I don't know. It, it just didn't. It felt a little bit too written for me, if that makes sense. It felt a little bit too much like Aaron Sorkin going, "We need something bad to happen." Okay, I'll just have this character not reveal this big secret. So that was the my only minor complaint about how they've developed Maggie so far. I'm surprised that. By the end of the second episode, she's apparently already broken up with Dawn. That relationship is apparently kaput. It is over. Now Jim is free to make his move, possibly. Or who knows, maybe this uh, fight with Dawn is only a temporary thing. We'll see. I was surprised that th- you know they ended Maggie's arc in this episode with her at the bar crying and basically having Don tell her that it's over. That, I feel, is almost irrelevant because the the outcome next week of the Don-Maggie-Jim triangle, which I, I find hilarious that people are considering, honestly, a triangle because it's going to take a lot more for us to even consider Jim as making any form of moves. I don't I don't see it in him to try and take Maggie away I don't think he's trying to take Maggie away from Dawn. I think he's waiting for their relationship to end. And I was surprised that that appears to have happened by the end of episode two already. I I kind of, when you know, when we see these quote-unquote love triangles in TV, I tend to expect that they'll get drawn out for at least a whole season. <laughs> I expected that Maggie would be with Dawn for most of the season, and then maybe in the finale something would happen and now Jim would have his opportunity. I don't know if that's going to happen, to be honest. It it doesn't seem right to me. I would believe more that next week we find out, yes, she went back to Don's apartment and apologized and things went okay. Or she's really done with Don and is going to spend a season just sitting down there actually learning how to do the news. Oh, I don't think that last, that latter option is going to happen at all. I think it's entirely possible we'll find out next week that she did go back to Don and that their relationship isn't over. But if it does turn out that their relationship is over, I think we're going to start to see more development and more, you know, flirtatiousness between her and Jim. And if that's the case, I'm surprised we got there so quickly. But maybe that's just me. You brought up Olivia Munn's performance. How did you feel about this new character that she's playing, Sloane Sabbath, who is a financial reporter who's going to be getting five minutes a night to basically talk about whatever she wants? How, how did you feel about that? 
the character itself, I find it quite intriguing, and I think it's mainly because of the interaction between her and Mackenzie in that in that small, tiny little interview that she ends up taking unnoticingly. We have this point where Mackenzie asks her, would you like more hours to work? And she's like, I don't want to do a morning show because I can't cook. I can't do all these things. Um, and you kind of think back immediately to the history of Olivia Munn being the the it girl on G4 and the kind of woman who basically you throw anything at her and she'll just laugh it off for the sake of the joke. But here, however, she plays that strong female presence where she's like, look, I'm a serious educated individual and I don't want to be I don't want to be objectified. I don't want to be um, made into anything else. While she accepts the objectification to a limit, she knows that at the end of the day, it's her content which gets her further in her career. Well, see, that is interesting to me because does it? Yes. I mean, you might say that it goes slightly hand in hand that, yes, maybe if she didn't have the legs, she wouldn't get the job. But more, but we can say for sure that if she didn't have the knowledge, she wouldn't get the job. That That's true. In this situation, McKenzie is mainly hiring her because she is a good reporter. And yet at the same time, I found it really interesting that McKenzie basically told her straight up, you have nice legs. And that is going to keep people interested. And rather than going on this long rant or really exploring why it is that, you know, it seems like you have to have this sex appeal now in the news to get people to pay attention, McKinsey just has basically accepted it as fact that now if you want to be a female news anchor, you've pretty much got to be attractive to some extent, or people will not watch. Um, and I want to talk about that a little bit more when we talk about the, the presentation of women on the show. But uh, overall, what did you think about that? About the presentation of women or the fact? About that that moment when you know McKinsey basically acknowledged, yes, you're smart, and we were looking for good reporters and good anchors, but you're also really hot. And that's kind of why we want you. I'm almost led to believe that you don't want me to answer that question until later. Um, <laughs> okay, okay, fair enough. But but hold on. What I think is, is most important, and you were bringing up, as you're saying, the whole idea of she's getting the job because she's hot. And in order for people to want to watch the news, they need to have someone sexually, physically appealing on the screen for them to sit through hearing what's happening in the stock market. Don't you think it's the same thing that's happening with Will um, Will McAvoy? Because last week when the show was going on, as soon as the show started and Mackenzie was in the booth telling everyone what was going on, the first thing she said was, why is he in that ugly suit? We need to start getting X, Y, and Z, the top name brands, so that he will look sharp and fantastic. I think that's a little bit different in the sense that it would be okay if Will wasn't as attractive as long as he dresses professionally and dresses in a really high-class manner, whereas it doesn't matter how well Olivia Munn dresses. If she wasn't physically attractive, she would not get that job, I don't think. I also think to add on to that is the difference between female to male sexual attraction. While women go crazy for Chip and Dale and Magic Mike, at the end of the day, they still see Will McAvoy, Denzel Washington, and Russell Crowe as attractive. 
Do people think Jeff Daniels is attractive? I don't know. If you're a female listener, write in and let us know. Navigating newsroom at filmgeekradio.com. Write in and let us know. Is Jeff Daniels an attractive individual? Think about it this way for, for one second. Don Draper, who I think can pretty much be Will McAvoy of this, this show, he is considered the most attractive man of the, of a period drama in which pretty much he's just the cut chin and a suit. Isn't that what Will McAvoy is offering, except he happens to go a bit crazy at times? I, I don't know. I, if you're, comp- if you're talking about physical attractiveness, I think most people would put John Hamm at least a few levels above Jeff Daniels, but maybe that's just me. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong. Nothing against Jeff Daniels. <laughs> I'm just saying, when I think Jeff Daniels, I don't immediately think, wow, that is a handsome man. You know what? I, I, I want to talk about Olivia Munn more, and I want to talk about McKenzie a lot. So, so in a couple minutes, let's come back to this issue of the presentation of women. Before, before we do that, though, the, the last other topic I really want to get into is Will McAvoy as, as a character. Because last week, you and I had a, had a big discussion about whether or not he's likable. And I'm still going to argue that this week's episode did nothing to make him more likable for me, really. The only thing he does, really, is tell everybody, you screwed up, which they already know. And we kind of get this idea that he's shallow as a journalist. He is safe. He is the Jay Leno of news in the sense that, you know, he's very, very concerned about ratings. And even though he says he wants to take Newsnight in a new direction, this episode is all about him basically trying to stay safe and and, and even bringing up the Sarah Palin issue and defending Palin at the end of his broadcast just because it'll help him get a ratings boost. Hold on, hold on. I disagree completely. I think I think you've got it all asked backwards here. First of all, you have to take into account that we never saw what Newsnight was before Mackenzie came on. We don't know what that show was. We can only imagine that it was the ratings-pushed news broadcasts that we know and hate. And that we got a glimpse of at the end. We got a glimpse of it at the end. But you're saying that he is shallow because of the news he selects, right? Yes, in the sense that rather than fully moving forward with this idea that I've got McKinsey here, we're going to do this new show, it's going to be great, we're going to do a top-quality news broadcast, he wasn't willing to risk it all. And when he saw that the show was not going well, he decided to bring up the Sarah Palin thing and defend her, even though I think he realizes he shouldn't. I think he realized he can't. Right. He, he, you know, it's an indefensible thing that she said. It's a really dumb thing that she said. And yet he's going to attempt to defend her just because he was told by this radio, this, his ratings guy, that is the safe thing to do. A lot of our viewers are older and a lot of our viewers are more conservative. If you take a stand on Palin, that's conservative. That will uh, improve your popularity. So, yeah, we saw that he kind of doesn't have as strong of a backbone as we had been led to believe. And McKenzie had to uh, chew him out for good reason, I think. The thing about Will and his backbone is that we already knew that he has no backbone in the public eye. 
when you saw him from that opening scene in the first episode where for the first five minutes of people throwing back and forth of these opinions and questions, Will sat there going, yes, no, yes, no, because he didn't want to, he didn't want to be that unabashedly opinionated person until he went, until something clicked in him and made him go off. Um, and then we saw him for the BP oil spill broadcast in which he got an opportunity to basically break a story. So he wasn't, he wasn't being anything wrong or bad or shallow. It wasn't until now that we're seeing this version of him in the public eye because the show is going so wrong and such. But at the same time, I almost don't even want to blame him for it because yes, he, he, he was afraid going into this new medium, but at the same time, I, 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 I forgive him for it because we needed to have this kind of a broadcast in order for him to have that revelation at the end where he tells Mackenzie, I'm in, I'm a hundred percent in, I'm not going to pay attention to the ratings. I'm going to do your show and we're going to do the news. He says that, but I have a hard time believing him. Well, look at the show they made. What what worst can he do? You know, I given the fact that he and this ratings guy, who are are they related? Is is that is this guy his brother? I'm I believe it's his agent. His agent. I could be wrong about okay. that. They they're so close, and and you know it's it, it's mentioned repeatedly throughout the episode that they meet every day to talk about the ratings. I really have a hard time believing that he's going to be able to give that up. Granted, we're only two episodes in the show, but I really have a hard time believing at this point that this is the type of character this this is a guy who has the integrity to stick with this new direction. I don't know if that's the case yet. He has not won me over as a character. I still don't think he's very I think he's interesting, but I still don't think he's very likable and I still don't find him very sympathetic. Most of the time he comes across to me as a um cold unforgiving, superficial guy with no backbone. That's the impression I have of Will McAvoy so far. And I know you I know you disagree, but I just haven't there hasn't really been a moment where I've come away thinking, well, Will was a really good guy in that moment. You didn't like him paying for the guy's taxi fare? <laughs> uh no. No, not good enough. <laughs> you didn't like him learning all of his staff's names? <laughs> no, because he got them he wrong. He stopped calling Dev Patel Punjab. But most of the names he learned were no longer on his staff, and the only names he remembered were, uh, you know, Dev Patel's character, Neil, sort of, <laughs> and the black Gary Cooper. <laughs> Those were the only ones he could remember. Um, anyways, I kind of wanted to bring up Neil for a little bit to do this episode because I started to notice something with this show and Neil in that he is in basically every shot of the show from the opening of season one, not the opening, I mean, when the actual show starts after the, the prologue of Will McAvoy going crazy and we actually get into the staff room, we see um Don and Maggie having a pseudo argument about the parents dinner 
and Neil is sitting right there and he's just minding his own business to which he's eventually drawn into the conversation and he's he even makes a comment he's like I I I was hoping I wouldn't be drawn into this conversation but oh well we see when this episode Maggie and Jim are having that conversation about the history of her and the guy who she lied under while he slept with another woman and Neil is just sitting in the background, and you kind of see every once in a while him turn his head toward the conversation going on, like, holy shit, I hear something over there that sounds massively, amazingly interesting. What is going on over there? And there's so many parts of the of these episodes where Neil is just right there in the background, and it looks like he's almost a fly on the wall just picking up everything that's going on in the room, and I find that to be such an interesting little thing. I do like that recurring gag that Neil is always there listening in on, on these exchanges. And by the end of the season, he's going to know everything about everyone. And not really through any choice of his own, but just for the fact that they seem to always argue around him. Um, are you ready to talk about the women in the show? Do we have to talk about women? Yes, let's do it. Damn let's, it. Let's do it. Before we get back about Olivia Munn and the one major complaint I, I I can throw at the development of her character. Let's talk about McKenzie because there's actually been a lot of controversy in the media about the newsroom and how it portrays women. Um, and I want to read a portion of this article that was written by uh, Maureen Ryan and Jace Lacob for the Huffington Post. I don't really, I, I usually don't read the Huffington Post. I'm not a big fan of the Huffington Post, but Maureen Ryan is a pretty good critic most of the time. This is what uh, Jace Lacob had to say about the role of women and McKinsey in particular on the newsroom, commenting on McKinsey's big email mistake. He says, It's hard to know what's most infuriating, that McKinsey is written as though she hasn't even heard of a war zone, or that she's presented as alternately hysterical and incompetent. Her email gaffe in the second episode is unbelievable and galling. If you're thinking, well, who hasn't sent an errant email? Why does it have to be some symbol of misogyny? Then picture a male character in Sorkin's world who doesn't know the difference between the asterisk and S keys on his Blackberry. Impossible. So basically in this article, Jace Lacob and Maureen Ryan seem are, are arguing that the way in which McKinsey is presented is pretty is, is kind of sexist in this episode. She makes this huge email mistake that is it's kind of unbelievable that someone as professional as her would make it. And there's even a shot of her like fumbling with her uh whiteboard or whatever as she's about to give a presentation and she like knocks it down. She isn't portrayed as very competent in this episode. Do you think that that is in keeping with her character? And do you think that is at all sexist? Um, well, first of all, talking about the email mistake, is it weird that I almost read it as her doing it on purpose for the sake of the staff's reaction to it? That is kind of weird. <laughs> I don't know how you could think that. You know, I you know, say what you will about McKinsey. I really don't think she wants everyone to know the intimate details about her relationship with Will. And even if she does, I I think she's so emotionally distressed about what happened with Will, and she's so concerned about trying to get him back on her side. I don't think she would consciously 
do something to um, undermine that. All right, well, here, in li- here lies my theory, and it could be completely wrong, and I-, I don't care what evidence the show has to disprove it, but whatever. The thing about the office dynamic is that you have Will as the head of the head of the news, head of the show, the guy who's the moneymaker, so at the end of the day, he's the guy that the the owner, Sam Watterson, is going to keep backing and changing out everyone else to make sure the show works. Mackenzie, on the other hand, has been brought in to push the show in a specific direction, which Will has been openly opposing for this last time, for the, the last two episodes. How does she get a staff of pretty much inexperienced children who, other than Jim, whose only safe haven is that he's completely trusted by Mackenzie? How does she get all of these staff members to stop being afraid of Will? And the only way to do that is to, instead of trying to make him likable, which is almost impossible because of the way he reacts to anything, is to make him vulnerable. And how does she do that? By pushing out this emotion, pushing out this reaction from Will, by telling the truth as to their actual relationship, which everyone knows existed, as they say in the show. And I mean, maybe it's the guise of the the script the script writing idea of if you introduce a problem in Act 1, by Act 3 that problem is going to actually happen. Um, so, at the beginning of this episode, they introduced the problem of Mackenzie made a mistake sending an email. So, what's going to happen at the end of the episode? Mackenzie's going to either remember how to make that mistake, or she's going to actually sincerely make the mistake. I'm buying the fact that she made it on purpose, just to get that reaction, and to try and get an office dynamic that would be more conducive to the show she wants to make. I really think you're reading into this what you want to see, but regardless of that, you know, regardless of whether or not she intentionally sent that email uh, the second time or whether or not it was yet another accident. I don't think she's the type of character that would have made that mistake to begin with. You know, she's been in a war zone. She's a really good EP. She knows how to do news. I think she knows how to send a simple email. That was actually my main problem with the episode uh, was this whole email subplot because it just felt way too forced it was it not in keeping with her character at all in my opinion and i i just cannot believe that someone at her level would make such an incredible mistake with an email but Um, then again doesn't that therefore make perfect sense if she's the kind of character you believe would never make this mistake, other than that first time where she she really just didn't understand, right? Then how then how could it be a mistake? It had to be on purpose. I, I don't think she would have made it the first time. You know, I, I it just felt like a giant plot device to me. That being said, while I do think that that was the most poorly written part of the episode, I don't agree with critics like Maureen Ryan and Jay Slaker when they say that that is sexist. And that Sorkin is undermining his female characters here. You know, they, they ask in the article, can you imagine a Sorkin character doing that? Who, a, a male Sorkin character doing that? And honestly, the answer is yes. I was actually reminded of a specific moment in, in, uh, I think season four of the West Wing when, uh, one of the lead speechwriters for President Bartlett makes 
an incredible mistake in one of the speeches that somehow winds up on the teleprompter. And it's a humorous situation. Like, much like the situation in this episode of the, new, of, of the newsroom was pretty funny to watch because it's so outrageous and it's such a big mistake. But like this episode of the newsroom, the situation in that episode of the West Wing wasn't very believable at all for me. Uh, but it did involve a male character. So I, I, I don't think that Sorkin here is doing this to Mackenzie because he's trying to undermine her as a character. He's, you know, un unintentionally being sexist in any way. I think that he's just the type of writer who will come up with these situations and think that they're funny and interesting, so he'll write them. Even if we just have to think about it, they're, they're kind of really pushing the audience's suspension of disbelief. At least they're pushing my suspension of disbelief. Also, it might just be me, but I know people on who I would consider to be very much like Mackenzie, and they still double-click on the internet. So I, I, I'm willing to believe someone has issues typing an email and doesn't, and do, and doesn't get the idea asterisk means everyone. Fair enough, fair enough. Uh, the, you know, the, the, the last thing I really want to talk about in regards to this whole idea of sexism is going back to this, going back to Olivia Munn's character, Sloan. Here's the thing. I can understand the criticism against the newsroom that by having McKinsey basically just say, we are hiring you because of your legs, as well as the fact that you're a good reporter, by just accepting that that is in itself a little bit sexist. I don't have a major problem with it in the context of the show. The thing I kind of take issue with is the fact that, again, Aaron Sorkin is sort of presenting the newsroom as his critique of modern media. We're getting the impression that with this show, he's going to be challenging the establishment and the system and these, you know, what we typically see in broadcast news. But here, rather than challenging that idea that a woman needs to be attractive in order to get viewers and to be good at her job in, in, in that respect, instead of challenging that, they just kind of accept it as fact and move on. Does that make sense? Why, why that could be a problem? Actually, it, it makes sense for people who don't have much brain power to understand what's really happening because and I, oh, and, and I, I, I apologize <laughs> I'm being glib okay I'm being glib I apologize yeah. to people listening I didn't call you idiots um, but the thing about it is and this is a big argument I've had with a lot of people about a lot of movies and television shows and I'm not saying everyone falls into this category but I'm gonna I'm gonna propose that this show particularly falls into this category in while it it accepts the fact that sexism exists and i'm sure everyone out there accepts the fact fact that sexism exists we all wish it wasn't there and i'm not saying that i'm a sexist i hope that the women in my life don't consider me a sexist but we accept the fact that objectification and sexism exists so why not empower our female characters by using that as a tool. I remember um, last year a, a film that 
I found a lot of people having the same argument for was um, X-Men First Class. And there were so many scenes and so many characters with their females where it became so much about their their body and their sexual um their sexual attractiveness but at the same time you could see in every, in almost every scene in which that was used it was about the woman using that fact to her advantage to then get somewhere else and it was empowerment as far as i'm concerned maybe in another 30 years that empowerment will no longer exist and women will never wear makeup again and high heels will be outlawed this is the world we live in right now and i i see what you're saying and i i agree with you you know, I do think that it is empowering for women to be able to use their bodies and be able to use their sexuality to get ahead and to use what was once used, you know, as, as a measure of subjugation and actually to actually use that to their advantage. I, I agree with with that. My problem is more with what I think the newsroom says it's trying to do versus what it's actually doing. You know, if the newsroom says it's going to challenge these dominant ideas and these dominant attitudes and institutions, you know, instead of just accepting that Sloan has to be attractive in order to to, to earn this five-minute spot, you know, why not have the episode be about McKenzie and Sloan, who's unattractive, trying to come up with a way to do the news that will still get viewers despite the fact that maybe Sloan isn't as attractive. You know, why not challenge, you know, that idea and try to really push that idea of there's another way we can do this. There's another way we can do the news. You're a good reporter, but you're not as attractive. It doesn't matter. We'll figure it out. We will figure out a way to do the news in an engaging manner that still keeps the ratings high. But they don't do that. They, they kind of just accept that that's the way things are. So it seems like Sorkin is willing to critique the way these systems run, but only to a certain extent. I mean, part of it is you can't have your cake and eat it too, like how you're saying. But at the same time, I feel like it's... It, maybe it's because I'm willing to put up with a lot more coincidence than you are. Because throughout the last two episodes, you have been dying under the word coincidence but at the same time why not use olivia Munn if you have her in your office why why do we have to go around the bush of saying let's find the unattractive woman just because we want to prove a point because that's because this show is all about proving a point you know there's so many scenes that we have where will or mckenzie or both of them are going on these long monologues about the way the news should be and how we're going to fix it. We're going to fix the news and we're going to speak the truth and we're going to get through all of the BS. But in when it comes to this particular issue of BS, the idea that you have to have good legs if you're a woman to be a news anchor, they don't challenge that. First of all, all of the things they talk about challenging has nothing to do with appearance. All it has to do with is content. If you look at Olivia Munn, she is bringing her for content. Everything else is and window dressing. Legs. Everything else and is window legs. dressing. But but we agreed earlier in, earlier in this discussion that Olivia Munn's character, this Sloan, probably would not have gotten a job if she wasn't as attractive. I didn't say that Anchor X 
who probably would have gotten the job if Olivia Munn wasn't in the building had to be attractive. Uh, okay, do you think the character of Sloane would have gotten this job if she wasn't attractive, if she did not have good legs? If there no. was. <laughs> because, no, because, I mean, you know, McKinsey tells her, you have, you have the legs. We need it to pull in the viewers and to keep them engaged while you talk about economics for five minutes. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying, why couldn't they challenge that? That's all I'm asking. Why couldn't the newsroom have challenged that? If, 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 if this is a show all about challenging the way, you know, broadcast news is done, why not challenge that aspect? That, that's my nitpick. You know? Andrew, right after that, they're going to go back to doing radio. What? <laughs> Maybe. But does that make sense? I guess it makes sense. Um, I come at it from a producer's standpoint that while they want to take pride in what they're making, they still want to make it something that people will watch. While the content is what she's driving for, everything else she's she's willing to compromise on, I'm pretty sure. Which is what we're seeing with the character of Olivia Munn. Okay, but if we if we're seeing... All of, if we're hearing all of this stuff about we need to change the news, we need to make a new kind of news show, why don't McKenzie and Will and Sloan sit down and say, how can we make an engaging news segment about finance and economics that will keep the ratings high without relying on your legs? That would be truly innovative. That would be truly innovative to do. I'd say the answer to that question is have someone who can engage you with interesting opinions and comments, just like a Will McAvoy does with the rest of the news. And Olivia Munn is that person. She just happens to have nice legs. Which helped her get the job. It's called opportunity (laughs) and coincidence. It happens in life. A year ago, I was sitting down in my office in Jamaica with a week left in my employment I was online just clicking apply, apply, apply. Three weeks later, I got a phone call from Trinidad saying, Hi, I want you to come in for an interview. I had never gotten a job that quick in my life. What was it? Is it coincidence? Your job probably isn't dependent on you having good legs. <laughs> uh, who, know, who knows? Maybe my boss thought my legs were good. That's, maybe, maybe. I mean, you know. I, I, I have to come to terms with that someday. Again, I, I, you know, I just want to say I, I enjoyed the episode, and I had a lot of fun watching it. These are just these, these nitpicks that I have that I think reveal larger issues and larger discussions that, that, I, that I think need to be had and that I'm enjoying having as a result of the show. So even though I might come across as like, oh, I really didn't like this aspect of it, I actually I do like the show quite a bit. Um, in fact, the things that I like about it, I like so much. I wish that the things I don't like, which I, it just irritates me that they're not done better. But is there anything else you want to say about episode two of the newsroom, Newsnight 2.0? It makes me sad that a show in 2012 is still talking about blackberries. I will agree with that. <laughs> that is a good point. <laughs> It makes me sad that in 2012, uh, we still have to have an attractive female like Olivia Munn 
on an HBO show to bring in viewers. I think you just summed up a lot of the Hollywood system right there. Yes, yes. And rather than challenging it, Aaron Sorkin went along with it. But okay, it is what it is. All right, well, that'll wrap it up for this episode of Navigating the Newsroom. We hope you enjoyed the show. Write it and let us know what you think. Am I am I just really overanalyzing this? Am I getting too worked up about it? Write in and let us know. You can email us at navigatingnewsroom at filmgeekradio.com. You can also email me at andrew at filmgeekradio.com or my co-host Andrew at andrewr at filmgeekradio.com. Andrew, where can people find you online? Well, coincidentally, they can find me at gmanreviews.com or on Twitter at gmanreviews. Why not gwomanreviews? Don't be so sexist. Oh, oh, I mean, I'm, I'm rife with sexism. <laughs> and now you also write for Screen Invasion and a few other sites as well, correct? I, I do write for Screen Invasion. I'm doing the newsroom recaps over there, so you can go check those out. You can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash writerandrew. You can occasionally find more of my writing at thekulashoveffects.com and uh, filmgeekradio.com. You know, this discussion about Olivia Munn's character and sexism, maybe maybe I'm thinking maybe I'll write something about it. Maybe maybe I'll write a short feature. I've, you've got my, my nimble juices firing. Just, just make sure to put a picture of her legs in the article. <laughs> because that wouldn't be sexist at all. You need to give the people something to look at while they pretend to stare at your words. Yes, something to draw them to the website. All right, well, that'll wrap it up for the show. Thanks a lot for tuning in. Uh, You can find more of our shows at www.filmgeekradio.com, including Cinema Fix and The Thin Place, which if you aren't listening to, you should really check out The Thin Place. Ken and Todd do a really good job uh, with that show. All right, that'll do it. Thank you, and I'm Tom Grunick. Good night. This has been a Film Geek Radio Radio production. Yeah, yeah, yeah.